Zechariah chapter 4. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the angel who, who talked to me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of olive gold and a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, You do not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel are, have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? A second time I, I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, David. Boys and girls can head out to Story Keepers and to uh, Nursery. children are heading out let's uh, let's pray together Heavenly Father thank you for uh, that you are a speaking God a revealing God you have uh, revealed yourself to us through your son Jesus Christ word made flesh and you reveal yourself to us through your written word we thank you for this book challenging as it is in places including our chapter today but the word that you have given to us breathed out by you for our edification, our strengthening, our encouragement, our correction. And so, Father, no matter what kind of week we've had, no matter at what point in our journey of faith we find ourselves today, may this be a time where we encounter you through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I had the uh, delightful experience of having coffee with Bob Jackson. Bob's probably better known as Robert C. Jackson, the nationally renowned artist uh, who has a studio right here on State Street, just up from the library. I've admired Bob's work for uh, many years, and uh, we've exchanged greetings many times as we've walked past each other around town. But to be honest, what piqued my interest to see if he'd, he'd have coffee with me was when I heard a few months ago that Bob had actually been at one time in full-time Christian ministry. 
That's another story for another time. But one of the parts of our conversation this week that I found particularly interesting was as Bob was explaining to me his process of painting and what he thinks about painting, he said, I never work on a painting that doesn't have a reason. It needs a narrative. It needs a story. The painting sets the viewer up with act one, and then they're invited to continue the story. And if you're familiar with Bob's art, you'll know how that sense of narrative is, is present in, in each of his paintings. That idea about narrative and story in still art struck me as pertinent to this early part of Zachariah, the book of Zechariah that we've been in for the last few weeks. Because what we're really looking at here, and have been for the past few weeks, are, are these visions. And in a real sense, these visions are not intended as puzzle books. Although, as we're going to see today, Zechariah does get somewhat puzzled by uh, today's vision. They're not intended as puzzle books, but, but picture books, but picture books that come with, with verbal description. It struck me this week that Zachariah's visions are somewhat like those Instagram posts you might see where the post, person posting adds a verbal image description below for, for the visually impaired. Zachariah is the one who actually got the vision here, but, but we're given the description so that we're left to visualize what the prophet saw as our imagination takes hold of the description of what was in that vision. And as we do so, we discover that there's a narrative and a story behind each vision that's there to push us towards its spiritual application. And part of the reason I think God uses visions here to such a discouraged people with Zechariah was to give this visual narrative of comfort and encouragement to the Israelites who were at this point totally downcast and demoralized. Remember again, it's 520 BC. The Israelites have returned home to their homeland after 70 years of exile in Babylon, but their homeland is now under the rule of the Persians. Jerusalem is still by and large rubble, and while the rebuilding of the temple has started, it had stalled with just the foundation built. However, up to this point in Zechariah, God has promised through the visions that Israel's enemies will be defeated and the temple is going to be rebuilt and the high priest is going to be reclothed in order to serve in the temple. And that all sounds great, but here in chapter 4 we find there's still a very simple problem. The basic task of rebuilding the temple is still incomplete. Well, in this vision... The fifth vision, God's going to address this problem by showing to Zechariah that God is going to take, himself is going to take responsibility to build the temple by the power of his spirit. And nothing will hinder his plans. That's really the gist of our sermon in a sentence this morning, which we'll express by way of adapting some words from another Bob, this time Bob the Builder. Can we do it? Yes, God can, and indeed he is. We'll think about this through uh, three points for the, for the chapter. First of all, the power of the Spirit. Secondly, the power of small. Thirdly, the power of God's Word. The power of the Spirit, the power of small, the power of the Word. Can we do it? Yes, God can, and indeed he does. So let's think, first of all, from the passage about the power of the Spirit. Look again at verses 1 to 3. And the angel who talked with me came again 
and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now the last time we saw the interpreting angel, he was uh, running in a sprint after the young man with the measuring line in chapter two. He's come back again. And as he comes back, he awakens Zachariah, not apparently from actual sleep, but Zachariah is like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And just to make sure Zachariah is alert, the angel asks him a question. What do you see? And Zachariah answers. He sees a golden lampstand with a bowl on top with seven lamps and seven streams or channels. That's a better translation, I think, than lips there. Seven streams or channels to each of the lamps. And then on either side is an olive tree, one on the left and one on the right. And at one level, this would have been pretty familiar to Zechariah as a prophet of Yahweh, because there had always been a lamp, or in Hebrew, a menorah, at the heart of Israel's worship. The word menorah derives from a verb meaning to flame. The lampstand was intended to have the appearance of a flaming, burning tree, like in Exodus 3. There was one such lampstand in the tabernacle in the days of Moses. There were actually 10 of these in Solomon's temple, creating an aisle with five uh, lampstands on either side. And these lamps were never to be put out. Twice a day, the priest would come to tend to the wicks and to replenish the oil. Zechariah, in his vision, sees a golden lampstand, but it's a lampstand with a difference. This is some sort of uber menorah, the exact configuration of which scholars continue to debate. There are certainly echoes of of the older lampstands that stood in the former temple, but this lampstand is larger and, and grander and brighter. This lampstand doesn't need to be filled by the priest because this one is is self-filling thanks to a bowl that is on top that acts as a receptacle for the oil. And from that bowl then flow out these seven streams or channels to each of the seven lamps. It's difficult actually to know if it's just one stream to each lamp or seven streams to each lamp. If it's the latter, then there are actually 49 streams of oil flowing, which would have meant a lot of oil, which explains why there are olive trees on either side of the lampstand. Now, if that vision confuses you right now, then that's perfectly okay because Zechariah was confused too. Look at verses four to five. And I said to the Lord who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Zechariah, I'm sure at one level, gets the fact that the oil for this mega lamp was being supplied by these two olive trees, which were somehow filling the bowl, which in turn was supplying the, su- supplying the light-up bits of the, of the lampstand via these channels. But does he really get what's actually going on here? Apparently not, or at least not yet. Just as a sidebar here, I think actually Zachariah serves us as an example uh, at this point, not in his apparent confusion. But you'll notice throughout this chapter when he doesn't fully comprehend what he's seeing, he's not willing to settle for a lack of understanding. You see how he, through the chapter, persists in asking the angel questions to gain clarity. I don't need to tell you that the Bible is 
at points and places quite confusing or difficult or challenging, but we, we do well to learn from Zechariah here not to stop pursuing a deeper grasp of its message. Let's not treat any parts of the Bible as sort of no-go areas to which we never turn because we just perceive them to be just too hard. Instead, we're better to cultivate an attitude that when we're faced with a difficult passage, that we, that we find it instead an invitation to wrestle on with the text and to pray for God's help through his spirit to understand it. Because when you do that, you find that, as Zachariah finds in this chapter, rich and valuable truths that enrich our Christian lives all to the glory and the delight of God. Well, the angel does respond to Zachariah's question. However, at this particular point in the vision, rather than clarifying things specifically about the lampstand and the olive trees, the angel delivers a message for the ruling governor, as you do. And so we pick up the passage again in verse 4. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? He said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, Zerubbabel is an important person in the book of Zechariah. So let me just say a word or two about him. Elsewhere, we learn that he was listed amongst those who had returned from Babylon, from exile, part of those who had rebuilt the altar, laid the foundation of the new temple. He was the governor of Judah, and the prophet Haggai tells us also that he was the son of a man called Shealtiel, which indicates if you do the research, that he was in the line of King David, and therefore he was qualified to rebuild the temple. But at this point, Zerubbabel must have shared the despair and despondency of the people. Because after the foundation of the temple had been laid, the rebuilding work, as we've said before, came to this screeching halt and had sat dormant for 16 years. And that was due to a number of factors. For one... There was the opposition from the neighbors. Jews who had returned from exile were now just one group amongst many in their homeland. The ruling Persians had resettled populations from all over Mesopotamia. And now, while there was room for the Jews to resettle, the neighbors were none too happy about the new folks in town. That discontent manifested itself, however, beyond them just moaning to each other about these perceived blow-ins. In Ezra 4, we read that for those 16 years, they did everything they could to thwart the effort of God's people rebuilding the temple. They did the equivalent of hiring lawyers, fighting appeals, bringing in every zoning board and, and conservation commission they could find, introducing new requirements to inhibit progress and also to imply that this rebuilding effort was in fact a covert act of sedition against the state. So there was this opposition to deal with. And then secondly, there was a lack of resources. While in the days of Solomon, all the finest resources were available in great abundance for the building of the temple. Here in the days of Zechariah and Zerubbabel, Israel had none of those advantages. So opposition, lack of resources, and then thirdly, their population was just seriously depleted. The time of Zechariah, Israel had a population of just about 3% of what it had been in Solomon's day. 
So Zerubbabel must surely have been discouraged by all this. But look at what God says to him here. He says, Zerubbabel, see that great and mighty mountain of obstacles, obstacles to the rebuilding of the temple? Through you, it's going to be flattened. Maybe the angel here on behalf of the Lord breaks into song. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley, you know, keep me from building my temple or words to that effect. God says there's no mountain too big that my grace can't scale or in in this case can't flatten. This mountain of obstacles is going to be made into a plain and the temple is going to be rebuilt with Zerubbabel bringing the capstone to complete it as the crowds present acknowledge that this is all, all by God's grace. All by God's grace. Or as the Lord of hosts just said before that, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Now I imagine that for some of us, even if we're pretty familiar with the book of Zechariah, we've heard that line before. It's one of the better known verses from the book for sure. And here in the context of the chapter, God's point is this. Here is what is going to make this work. It's all going to be by the power of my spirit. That just as that this new Uber lampstand would be supplied from resources from outside itself, Zerubbabel will rebuild the temple, but only from power outside himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as the oil flowed continuously to keep the lamps lit, so the Spirit's power would flow to enable the rebuilding of the temple. But the application of this, of course, goes way beyond just the rebuilding of the temple in Zechariah's day, because it's a reminder to us that anything we want to achieve that is good Anything we want to do that will bring pleasure to God, anything that will truly bless others, it's not by might. That is, it's not by means of things that we can count, like money or people. It's not by power. That is, it's not by our own abilities or our gifts or our efforts. It's all by the Spirit of God at work in us. Now, there are a number of ways we could tease out some application on this, but I actually want to relate this verse for a moment to one of the prayers that is in the current Lent edition of the Daily Prayer Project. A couple of you have asked me about this prayer, which probably means a lot more of you are wondering what on earth it's saying. And I have to say this prayer caught me off guard when I read it the first time. Here's the prayer, which some of you, if you're using DPP, will have prayed yesterday morning. Lord, show us deeply how important it is to be useless. Has to be a typo, right? I mean, surely it should say, show us deeply how important it is to be useful. But it's not a typo. The Daily Prayer Project tells us that this prayer comes from Bangkok, Thailand. One of the things I love about the project is how it draws in prayers from Christians and churches in other parts of the world, which I think just opens our eyes, opens our vision to what it means to be a Christian, learning from others. But why on earth would we be praying for the Lord to show us deeply how important it is to be useless? When I read this prayer for the first time a few weeks ago, my mind was taken back to just before we moved here to Canada from Dublin. While I was in Dublin, I was doing a leadership course. I was being mentored by a a World Harvest missionary and hero of mine called Donovan Graham. And he and I were praying one day, 
And in my prayer, I had asked God to, quote, use me, probably for his kingdom or for the gospel or for God's purposes, something similar. And we ended the prayer, and Donovan looked at me and said, what was that all about, the, the being used petition? God doesn't see you as a tool. You're his adopted son whom he loves. He's your heavenly father. He's got no interest in using you. And of course, he's right. If you look up the word useful in the New Testament, it's never applied to us as Christians. God's word is described as useful. Godliness is described as useful. We're never described as useful. And that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you came to me this week and said, you know, I really felt used by my friend this week, that's not a good thing. You're not happy about that. And we can get all that, but it still feels sort of out of kilter to ask God to show us deeply how important it is to be useless. But here's why I think that's actually a great prayer, and I think that it fits with Zechariah 4.4, because this is a prayer that God would continually ground our identity in who we are in Christ and not by what we do. A prayer that would look to him and his spirit for all things and not to ourselves. That we would live out of the truth spoken by Jesus that without him we can do nothing. That the key is we abide in him. That we relate to him. It's not a prayer of passivity. Here in Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel will have work to do. But it is a prayer of utter dependence which starts with an acknowledgement of our uselessness and a cry for relationship with the living God by his spirit. Zerubbabel's work wouldn't be achieved by his might or by his own power, but by God's spirit. And if you want a barometer in your own life of your own awareness of uselessness, a barometer that that all you're, all you're doing is, is seeking to do it by the Spirit, then let me suggest you just reflect a little bit on your prayer life. There are a few, few better gauges to indicate whether you're seeking to live a life defined by self-sufficiency and usefulness of might and power versus living a life defined by utter dependence on God and uselessness and life by the Spirit than your prayer life. Can we do it? Yes, God can, and he does by the power of his spirit. So that's the power of his spirit. Secondly, the power of small. One of Tara's alma maters, Rosemont College up near Bryn Mawr, has these very words as its motto, the power of small. And they're very appropriate words for what happens next in this chapter. Look at verses 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. God says, I've started this project through Zerubbabel, and I'm going to complete the project rebuilding the temple through Zerubbabel. Through Zerubbabel, I'll finish what I started. What we then read in verse 10, I think, does raise a question for us as readers as, we, as it's presented to us in the ESV translation. 
Because it seems strange, I think, that those who despised the day of, of small things, despise is a very strong word, would then rejoice. That's not an impossible transformation, an impossible scenario. But as you read that, I think it should warrant asking some questions of the text, just as Zachariah asked questions of the angel here. One way to do that when you face such a situation when you're reading your own Bibles is to say, well, maybe, maybe I should look at some other translations, compare translations. One really helpful website I found to do that is biblehub.com. It'll, you put in a verse and it'll show you countless different translations and you can compare them and that helps you see if there might be a translation issue, why, why some translations have gone one way and not the other. Here, listen to how the NIV translates this verse. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's a little differently, doesn't it? And you'll find that actually quite a few translations go the direction of the NIV here. And as you might have guessed, since I'm showing that to you, I actually think that translation fits the Hebrew better and actually makes more sense. Earlier, I mentioned the obstacles that Zerubbabel was facing, the opposition and the lack of resources and the depleted population. None of those, I think, actually compared to the, the biggest challenge he faced. The biggest challenge were the cynics, were those who were just disparaging all the efforts of everyone around them, minimizing the importance of what they were seeking to do. In Ezra 3, we read that when the foundation of the new temple was being laid, there was one group of Israelites, probably the younger generation, they were ready for a full-on praise service. They're like, the foundation's been built, let's celebrate. But we also read that day that there were present the old saints, old enough to have seen the first temple before the exile who when they saw the foundation, they wept as loudly as the first group were singing. So one group's having a praise party and the other are singing the blues. And it's that latter group, along with those who are mocking the the work, who Zachariah says were despising this day of small things. But as the NIV translation helpfully points out, do you know who wasn't despising that day? God wasn't. Because God's rejoicing. These seven lamps, we're told, turn out to represent the eyes of the Lord roaming through the earth. God sees everything. But God's eyes work differently than our eyes because when God sees, he sees to it. When God sees, he sees to it. His sovereign eyes accomplish what he longs to see. And therefore, these roaming eyes, we're told, will be rejoicing eyes. Because they will enable things to progress such that he will see, they will see the capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel, which will complete the temple. Because these eyes know this is just the beginning. God wasn't calling Israel to make the equivalent of the temple that Solomon had built. No, this was the start of a new narrative towards a new age. There was a new purpose with this temple. This temple was to be deliberately small because God's intention with it was to whet the appetite of his people for the real second temple that was yet to be built. This temple was just a foreshadowing to the one that was to come, the one that Jesus Christ himself would build, the living temple of the Holy Spirit, as described by the Apostle Paul. 
In Ephesians 2, he says, So you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What started small as an abandoned foundation wept over by many has gloriously developed into this global body of living stones making up the living temple of Christ church. Now I hope you can see some of the implications for our own lives from this, that we're not to despise the day of small things here as a church or in individual lives. My guess is that at a church, you don't despise the day of small things because we all are part of a small church. But in our individual lives, we need to think about this because every great work of the Spirit starts out small. Greatest example of that has to be a tiny baby in a feeding trough in Bethlehem who would become the savior of the world through his death on the cross, his resurrection to new life. After which, what, what does he do? He pours out the Spirit upon us. Every great work of the Spirit starts out small. But the present experience is small only compared to the future God has in store for us. We can be tempted to think that if we can't do something big right away, if we can't do something significant, if we can't do something noticeable, then there's no point even starting or trying. But that's not how God sees it. So your devotional time tomorrow morning in God's word and in prayer that you might be tempted to skip because you're like, well, what good does it do anyway? Or sure, I'll just do it on Tuesday. Or that act of kindness or hospitality to someone in need, which could possibly make, be a little inconvenient for you. Or that smile to the stranger or greeting that person who has slighted you recently or that donation, however small, to help those suffering right now in the Ukraine. Do not despise the day of small things. I read yesterday this account by a guy called Marty Duran. He's a bivocational pastor in Tennessee. His wife just had a fairly significant surgery, so he's been spending a lot of time in the local hospital he wrote this, Tonight, after eating my umpteenth Subway sandwich this week at the hospital, I noticed a lady ordering. She was the only person in line and with my exit alone in the eating area. She asked the cost of a bag of chips, then didn't order any. I noticed a crumpled cookie coupon in her hand and realized she was trying to stretch her money to get a meal at a hospital where some loved one is suffering. A daughter, I learned. I told the sandwich artist, I've got this, and then to the lady, get whatever you want. And it wasn't the thank you that surprised me. It was how the tension left her body. Suddenly she had no concern at all about her money versus her meal. She ordered freely instead of hesitantly. Yes, there are spiritual applications here about trusting God, those are good. But there's also a practical application. Seven dollars changed someone's night. A pittance for me was a lot for her. A sub-sandwich meal can look like fish and loaves to the one 
who receives it, end quote. That's the power of small. And then lastly and briefly, the power of God's word. Look at the closing verses with me. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are besides the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the angel hadn't answered Zachariah's earlier question the way he was hoping. So the prophet comes back to seek clarification specifically about the olive trees. The angels already expressed some incredulity that Zachariah isn't getting it. And so he says the same thing again. You really don't get what this is? You have to imagine he's getting a little exasperated with Zachariah. Zachariah says, no, that's why I'm asking again. But in the very last verse, Zachariah gets an answer to his question. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, if you consult, I'd say, 90 to 95% of your study Bibles or your Bible reading notes or commentaries, they're going to tell you here that these two anointed ones are without a doubt the two main characters of chapters 3 and 4, that is Joshua the high priest that we looked at last week, and Zerubbabel the governor. And I'm attracted to that too, because with a priest and a king, it takes us right to the Messiah, and you know how I love to go to Jesus from the Old Testament. And that interpretation is certainly possible. But as my old professor Meredith Klein wrote in his commentary and my Australian friend Anthony Patterson wrote in his commentary, there's a better interpretation. If you have a, a, a Bible open, and certainly in the ESV, in the footnotes, it tells you that the literal expression here is not anointed ones. It's sons of oil or sons of new oil. And that's a turn of phrase used elsewhere, this sons of something to refer not to a recipient of something, but a source. In other words, these two people as sons of oil are not the anointed, but in some ways the anointers, which most likely means it's not a reference to priests and rulers like Joshua and Zerubbabel, who would have been anointed to their offices, but it's a reference to prophets through whom the anointing of the Spirit by the Word comes. That these were the two prophets who were there the day the foundation was laid for the temple. In other words, Haggai and, Zer and, and Zechariah. Which I think, and others think this too, that explains why Zechariah keeps saying, I don't get this. Because he just can't work out who the olive trees are, who these sons of oil are who stand by the Lord. And now he finds out it's him and his buddy Haggai, and he couldn't see it. The irony of the vision is Zachariah doesn't recognize that he's in the vision, that it's through the ministry of the word in the power of the spirit that God achieves his purposes, making his presence plain and obvious in the world. And now for us, God has poured out this same spirit on us so that we carry on the responsibility and the privilege of proclaiming the same word through sermons and in growth groups and in one-to-one -one Bible reading and through evangelism, all of which seems to us so small and insignificant at times, and indeed at times is despised certainly by the world, 
But as we do these things, the Spirit is growing us increasingly into the temple of the Lord. Do not despise the day of small things, because it's not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Can we do it? Yes, God can, and he is. That's the narrative of this vision that God wants us to live by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the provision of your spirit, the provision of your spirit to the prophets who proclaimed the good news of what you were doing, the provision of your spirit to Jesus who came as the ultimate prophet and as of his pouring out your spirit on us so that we might live not by might nor by power but by your spirit that we might not despise the day of small things that we might not shun the beauty and the glory of being useless because it shows a dependence upon you help us to take these things and apply them in our lives and make a difference to tomorrow morning as we're perhaps tempted not to open our bibles And this week, when we come across the stranger in need of a smile, or the woman who needs a $7 sub sandwich, or those who just need encouragement that you have enabled us to give them through your spirit, help us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name.